Like a deer in the headlights or gum in your hair, what got you here will not get you there. Join us as business owners get unstuck in real time on the business building struggles we all share. Welcome to the Business Breakthrough Podcast. And here's your host, Esty Rand. Welcome to episode 92 of the Business Breakthrough Podcast. My guest today is Jim Estill. Jim, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. And awesome on 92 episodes. Good for you. Oh, thank you. I know. Guys, we've been doing this a long time. So, guys, Jim has got quite a story. I cannot wait for us to all hear this. He's the CEO of both Danby Appliances and Shipperby, which is a new venture that is revamping outdated shipping channels into a system that's better for consumers, retailers, and the environment. I feel like that would be a super win for everybody. So guys, he's a Canadian technology entrepreneur, executive, and philanthropist, having started his first computer business from the trunk of his car while in university and grew it to just, you know, a mere $2 billion in sales. No big deal. He invested in, mentored, and advised many technology companies, including BlackBerry. He joined their board before they went public and served for 13 years. Yeah, okay. So over the past few years, Jim has been involved in sponsorship efforts to settle over 100 refugee families in, how is that pronounced, Guelph? It's Guelph, yes. Guelph. Uh, where Near is Toronto, that? Toronto for your listeners. Near okay. Toronto. It's west of Toronto by about an hour. Okay. Um, he's been featured in Financial Times, BBC News, The Guardian, CBC, and he was awarded by the Order of Canada in 2018. Um, and the what is the EY Entrepreneur of the Year? Uh, well, Ernst Young does an Entrepreneur of the Year, ah. and it's it is sort of a big thing. It's it's global, but I was uh, just the winner of my region, Ontario region. Oh, just but, my uh, region. The, okay, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I like how you say that, but you've had a history. Wow, can we talk about just? the trunk of the car computer business that hit 2 billion and like why are you not google oh well you see i'm not as not successful that's the problem i'm not successful with google so i was an engineer in uh, university i wanted to design circuit boards i needed a computer and got a better deal if i bought two of them so i bought two of them sold one of them and then someone else wanted a computer, so I bought another two, and then someone wanted a printer, and someone wanted some software. So next thing you know, I'm buying and selling computer products. And the reason the trunk of the car myth comes up is, at the time, I lived in a university residence, and the safest place for my stuff was the trunk of my car. And back then, computers and memory chips and stuff like that were very valuable or uh, expensive. And so that was my vault, and they were quite small. You know, you could put $10,000 worth of memory chips in the trunk of my car, which the car was probably worth a thousand dollars if that so <laughs> I love it okay so you became a a buying and selling you were a middleman yeah so I was just I was a middleman buying and selling uh computer I wonder what the term for that could be like e-commerce is like maybe t-commerce like trunk commerce <laughs> That's it. You you got it exactly. Now, <laughs> you were an you, early T-commerce entrepreneur. <laughs> exactly. I love it. Okay, but then the gap from trunk of the car to two billion in sales. Had had that go? Well, um, it was a it, obviously slow. So I mean, the first ten years 
Um, I mean, it took me actually uh, 14 years to get to 100 million. And it wasn't until the last five years that I'd be growing 100 million a year or even 100 million a quarter. So my first year sales are like 450, then a million and 79,000, then 2.6 and 4.6 and 5.6. That was a slow growth year. Then uh, 10 million, then 21 million, then 30 million, then 40 million, and then I did 39 million. I dropped for, by a million. I literally leave these your real numbers. You memorized them, didn't you? Uh, yeah, you think yep. I just made these up? Yeah, of no, course. These are real when you're small, these are important numbers. It's and, and so for three, for three years, I did $40 million, you know, 40, uh, 39, 41. So I learned that no growth is no fun because certain expenses go up. Like my rent might go up, my heat, my taxes, you know, little things go up. And even my staff wanted to raise and you can't build efficiency in if you don't grow. So by growing and then the next year we did 68 million, then I did uh, 100 million and then uh, just kept on going from there. So that's that's how I uh, started doing it. And I basically would get, um, you know, I'd be doing too much stuff. I needed someone, so I hire someone to do part of my job to do the accounting. Then I hire someone else to do something else. And it's just basically growth management. It's a lot of fun. I love it. What, could I ask what the name of the company was? Sure. It was EMJ Data and later became Cynix, S-Y-N-N-E-X. And Cynix is a publicly listed company now. You can look it up. They do billions of dollars in sales. They're a, um, a silent middleman. So you don't know them, um, but they would when I left Cynix, we had a 50% market share, five zero percent market share of all toners, all inks, all brands of printers. We had a 66% market share of Apple. So Cynix sells to Best Buy and sells to, uh, you know, Walmart and sells to uh, Joe's Computer and whatnot. So uh, Got that it. Was I mean, the, you you company. you didn't build the computers. You were never a manufacturer. You sourced them from the manufacturers. Generally, yes. I mean, we did build our own back then called clones. So we did build that as well. And I, and I owned some brands, but mostly I sold other people's brands of computers and brands of printers. So we sold brands that people would have known like Lexmark, like HP, like Microsoft, like Sony, like uh, brother. And, uh, and we were a silent middleman and people say, Oh, we're going to cut out the middleman um, to save money, but you can't save money cutting us out because we saved, we were less expensive. For instance, we were shipping a skid to every single staple store every single day. So if you're brother and you try to ship your one printer to one staple store, it costs you $25, where for us to put it on the skid costs us $2 and we could charge you $12 or whatever. So we basically use leverage to share the overheads amongst multiple manufacturers. And, and that translates through to everything from sales calling to merchandising to uh, going to trade shows, marketing and all that kind of stuff. So that was the business. Got it. Because that's what I was just thinking. Like, why wouldn't Staples just buy straight from Brother or HP? Like, why would they want to use you? But it's, it's the shipping. So you were like an early Amazon-ish? Not really. Not really. Uh, not really. Like, Amazon is a marketplace that people sell through. You were actually cutting deals with all the manufacturers, suppliers. Right. Then you were setting up deals with all of the resellers, all of the storefronts, the B2Cs. And your exactly. win was that because you did such a high volume, did you get the actual, you got everything cheaper for everybody because of your volume level. Did you stock it in your own warehouse? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had 
well over a million square feet of warehouse. Most recent, when I was when I left Cynics, I about five years before that, we bought a 620,000 square foot facility was our main one of the facilities we bought in Guelph. And so, uh, yeah, it's basically warehousing logistics and sharing those amongst multiple manufacturers. And um, for an HP, they can go direct easier, but um, there's a lot of other brands that are not as big as that, like Targus, like uh, D-Link, like, and, and it just is, even the retailers don't want to buy from 50 different suppliers. Do you want to buy Epson and D-Link and Targus and um, Logitech and uh, HP? And, and so it's kind of like, why do you buy on Amazon? You partly buy on Amazon because it's the you know, if it doesn't work, you return it to Amazon and you, you trust Amazon as your credit card. You've already, you're already set up there. You, even I tend to not buy direct on your website. I will buy your product from Amazon easier because I'm Amazon one click. I'm Amazon prime. I'm, I don't have to, I don't have, I don't even know my credit card. I don't have to take it out of my pocket. It's already there. And uh, so we were basically facilitating that and sharing our overheads amongst multiple manufacturers. So we would go into a computer show with a booth that would be displaying Targus and Logitech, where Logitech would have to have a you know big booth and send their sales reps and stuff like that. And we were handling, uh, when I started, mostly just Canada. So it was a very large geography. Got it. I love it. I love it. So why'd you leave it? Uh, well, I left it, I sold my business. And that's uh, partly entrepreneurial fear. So every entrepreneur who builds a business is worried that something's going to happen. Like I, I'm worried today, what's going to happen in the world, right? I mean, and so, and I had it really good. And I, sort of my life plan is, oh, you know, you build a business, you sell it for a lot of money, you retire. And so I did. I built business, sold it for a lot of money. I retired and I was retired for five years. And I said, well, this kind of sucks. I wasn't totally retired. I was on boards and <laughs> I was doing, you know, doing a bunch of little things, but I wasn't, I wasn't running a business. And yeah. one of the boards I sat on was Danby Appliances. And then, uh, so I, I moved to New York for five years to do this angel and venture capital stuff. Mm -hmm. And then my dad got sick. So I moved back to Guelph and I was on the board of Danby Appliances. The CEO resigned and I said, oh, I can go in and run it because it happened to be in the place where I lived in Guelph. And Danby is about a $400 million company. I'd done the $2 billion. So it was in my size range, um, but it was appliances, which is kind of boring, not, 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 technology and then uh the company or the family that owned the business said they wanted me to sell it and i said how much for and they said they gave me a price and i said okay fine i'll take it so that's how <laughs> i ended up i have pocket change here okay a couple <laughs> bucks <laughs> exactly and you see i had i had in my mind after i started running i said great this is gonna be my next decade plan because i i like running a business and i like the scale even though Danby's not big but it's big enough i like the scale and uh, so they were cutting that out from under me. So I, that's how I ended up with Danby Appliances. I love it. How did you learn? Zen, it sounds like you're an engineer by, by training. How did you learn to run a business? Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I study, I uh, run, I learn by trial and error. I mean, basically, I, 
I don't know how I learned. I do know when I have a business problem, I study it. And I know now with computers and Google, uh, if I have a business problem, I go on to YouTube and watch a lot of videos and I do that quite frequently. That's how, matter of fact, when I got into Danby Appliances, um, that's how I learned how a refrigerator worked. I didn't know how a refrigerator worked until I, I bought Danby Appliances or, or started working. But if I spend an hour a day watching some YouTubes and reading some articles, in three weeks, I know, I know how refrigerators work. I mean, it's not, it, it, it's simple enough if you study. So I did study. One trick I would do is when I was doing 5 million in sales, I would talk to people who were doing 20 million. And when I was doing 20 million in sales, I talked to people doing 100 million. And I always kept looking, what am I going to have to change to do 200 million, to do 500 million? And what I learned is usually what I had to do wasn't something I had to do. It was something I had to not do. It was what was I going to give up? What was I not going to do? And sometimes that's extremely hard because we often do the things we do because we like doing them. We know how to do them. But if we end up doing them all the time, as I remember um, distinctly coming back from a trade show and, it, and not sending people the quotes and the pricing, getting someone else to do it. And, and it almost killed me because I knew how to do the pricing. And the, but if I did that, then I'd be the sales rep for everybody. If I'm the sales rep for everybody, then it's not scalable. So that was my uh, trick on how to. I think scale that up. is so major. And for everybody listening, like that is just, that is huge. Both pieces of that, always speaking to people at a next stage because, you know, your peer group is what influences kind of your, one of my mentors calls it your financial thermometer, right? Like if everyone you're right. hanging out with is earning around the same as you or less than you, you're comfortable. But if everyone you're hanging out with kind of earning more than you, you're like, oh, I'm not there yet. You know, you got, and, and you get that mindset from them of, of what it looks like at that level. And, and I agree with you. As I've grown my own company also, it's always what am I not going to do? It's not what I'm going to do because I'm already doing most right. of it. It's what am I going to stop doing? Totally right. You're, the way you put it, I, I say you are the average of the people you hang around with. Yeah. Like it, top you five, around with you are the of average of the top five people you spend your time with. Exactly. And that goes not only with financial well-being, that does go with health as well. Yeah, everything. Like, if you hang out if, with four, with five fat people, you are looking at some serious weight gain. Right. Because you don't think you're that much overweight because all your buddies are. Yeah. And all exactly. their habits are like that. And like, even though in the beginning, like yeah, we all go to a restaurant and everyone eats three times as much as you like slowly, slowly. We are so influenced by our surroundings. You hang out with a bunch of people who, who speak well, you're going to start speaking better. You hang out with a bunch of people who curse every other word as an F-bomb, you're going to start finding your vocabulary going down. Totally right. Now, I'm only doing that just because I'm on this show and I thought, you know, your listeners wouldn't want to hear me. I'm teasing. <laughs> Now I'm very careful about that. Um, and I found that depending like who I'm with, um, I worked on my language for, for years. I used to curse like a sailor. Um, oh, well, uh, well, and the other, here's the thing on, on cursing. Cursing is just laziness. Like if you, if you have to curse, it's laziness and it might offend some people. Do I want to offend some people? No, I might be offending my customers. I might be offending my suppliers. I might be offending my employees. And so I don't need to. Why would I bother to possibly offend some people? Let's not go there. Sort of like in business, I don't do politics and I don't do religion. Like 
because I'm going to offend someone because so basically, no, I'm not political. I don't really have a view. Um, and I'm the same thing with uh, religion. I let's let's not go to religion. Right. Love it. Yeah, no, nah, I'm totally with you. OK, so you're always speaking to people who are at a more advanced stage. How are you getting a hold of them? I feel like I always like to ask the questions. I know the listeners want to know. They're like, OK, this is a good idea, guys. But where do I find these next level business owners to talk to so I get to pick their brain or get to understand what they do? So it is so simple. For starters, you have to treat it like sales. You will get some rejections. Big deal. You get some rejections. Is that like don't take it personally? You got some rejections. So you just have to ask, and people will respond. And uh, LinkedIn is the tool of the century. You can Google, and if you're saying I want to talk to someone who is in the uh, writing field, you, you, like you you know who these are. It's easy with Google to know who they are. Reach out on LinkedIn say you want to have a conversation. The other trick I do is I always try to add value. So if I can add some value. Now, often you, you don't get a chance to do that in advance, but I freely give without saying, okay, I'm going to give you this because you're going to give me something. I just give you something. And then you're going to say, you know, who knows next month you're going to say, Oh, I'm buying a freezer. I better buy a Danby freezer, you know, cause Jim uh, seemed like he was an okay guy or whatever. So I freely give. And to some extent I connect. So if you happen to mention that you were looking for new space and I happen to know someone who has space, I would, I put the two together and I'm not saying, Oh, and you pay me a commission. They pay me a commission. Oh no, no you, you go do your business, right? You go do it. I love it. I absolutely love it. Okay. So now you're running Danby, you're on the board of a bunch of like super cool tech companies. Um, the money's like pocket change for pretty much everything. And now you have a new venture you're working on. Yeah, so um, I, I started a new company called Shipperbee. And, the, and I'm an environmentalist, an eco guy. Um, Shipperbee saves 73.1% of the greenhouse gas per parcel shipped. How? And so it's my... So it's my passion because, um, and but the the back history on it, I go into Danby Appliances and we make bar fridges and uh, freezers and wine coolers. And I'm sitting in the factory saying, what else, you know, what are, how are we going to grow this? And I say, okay, well, we, we're a company that makes big boxes. What's a industry that's growing? Shipping is an industry that's growing. Parcel shipping. Everyone's getting everything by Amazon. Everything's getting everything delivered. Well, that means porch piracy is growing. People are stealing parcels. So I researched the growth in the parcel industry, and so Danby came up with a product called Parcel Guard, which is a smart parcel mailbox. It emails you or texts you to say the parcels arrived. It's in. It's protected. It's in the, in this uh, um, you know parcel mailbox. Um, it's got a car alarm or someone tries to steal the mailbox. It's a tech enabled. You can look on the camera, see who delivered it. So for me, I love it because it's in my tech now. Again, it's tech enabled. But I in the research for. What's the number of parcels delivered? What's the growth in parcel market? What's the size of the parcels? Then I start saying, whoa, what's the environmental footprint that we're creating by shipping all this stuff? And what's the traffic we're going to have? Um, and I was actually driving behind a FedEx truck in stop and go traffic and saying, why is that truck on the road taking all, you know, how good is this? Let's reduce traffic, take trucks off the road, because I'm looking around me and all the cars are driving with empty back seats and empty trunks. Let's move some parcels in the, and, and I had 30 years ago, I wrote a book on time management. And one of my chapters was on, called The Power of While. What can you do while you're doing something else? And uh, 
So what can I do while I'm going to the airport? I can take parcels because I'm already driving to the airport. So parcels travel part of their leg using that power of while. And as an entrepreneur, that power of while is another great way to do it. For instance, I do walking meetings. Like, why is that? I get a little bit of fresh air. I get um, a little bit of exercise. So what can I do while I'm getting some exercise? I can talk to someone. It's, it's the power of while. If we weren't video, I'd, I'd even pull up my weights and show you. I, I, do, I do weights when I'm uh, doing conference calls. See? <laughs> I do the... Oh, wow. Oh, wait, those have a name. What are they? Not dumbbell, barbell. Um, kettlebell. It's, ke it's, it's kettlebell. Yeah, this is a 40-pound oh, kettlebell. Is what oh, my I, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. I tried at one point to um, make my work chair a exercise ball, supposed to like double duty, right? I'm working and I'll be exercising my core. I was so distracted by rolling around and by having to hold my muscles. I was like, forget it. This is not double. This is just half. I can't get anything done. Well, but I like I am. You're talking to me now. I am at my stand up desk, so yeah. I'm standing. Like I'm not. Uh, I'm not at a chair. So, and my my desk actually goes up and down. I have a chair, but I never use the chair. So. Wait, there you no. go. Standing exactly. desk. Now we're both standing. We're matching. To totally. Perfect. Perfect. Got it. I like that. I love that line, the power of while. You have some really good lines. So how, so that's how we save 73% of gas because the concept is kind of like crowdsourced? So, so part, part of it is that the parcels are traveling while the car's already going. So that's part of the savings. The other saving, we're breaking the hub and spoke. So currently, if you ship a parcel from New York to New Jersey, it goes New York to Memphis to New Jersey. What we're doing is you're going New York, Why New York to New Jersey. Why in the world would it go New York to Memphis to New Jersey? Because it has to go to the clearing center? That's where the sort centers are. So all the couriers have these sort, massive sort hubs. And they send everything to the massive sort hub. It gets sorted and then gets redistributed, but you're driving back and forth. So in the area where I am, I mean, I'll ship a parcel. <laughs> Literally, I can ship a parcel next door. It goes from, it goes a hundred miles. That's how far the parcel travels to go from here to 250 yards next door. Because wow. the driver doesn't read the weed where it's going. The driver puts it in the back of his truck. It goes to the sort center. They redistribute it, put it back on a truck, and put it next door. We actually read where the parcel is going, and we have a, a series of transfer hubs because the name of the company is Shipper B. We call it these hives. And so what would happen is driver would pick up 10 parcels at my business, drop them at the hive, which are all located on the interstate because um, commuters all – go on to an interstate they're at gas stations gas stations are located on the entrances to the gas to the interstate so the key for a commuter driver or a power of wild driver is to take no extra time so literally you're driving past the gas station you drive in your phone goes green you hit the button a couple of times the proper door opens says take 12 parcels they weigh 12 pounds you take the parcels you go off the interstate on where you're heading off drop off the 12 parcels and then an endpoint driver would go and pick up 48 parcels from that hive and they would deliver them into the subdivision or deliver them to the businesses on the other end. So endpoint drivers are more like Uber drivers that say, oh, I want to work for two hours. Commuter drivers are a brand new type of gig that you're getting paid while you're doing anything, something anyways. It's unlikely that you would sign up to be an Uber type driver because you don't want to take more time but you would absolutely sign up as a commuter driver because 
why not get paid for doing something you're doing anyways? And we actually pay commuter drivers very well. You get paid $60 an hour for, um, for the time out of your way. So that's pretty good pay and it's tax free. Um, so it's that's awesome. I love this idea. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to part one of this episode. Stay tuned for part two going live Thursday. And of course, subscribe. You do not want to miss this.